Um, it's one of my favorite books. I've heard a couple of people say this morning that it's one of their favorite books as well. We're going to be in the fourth chapter. And uh, last week, I actually kind of cruise through Pastor Steve's message, and one of the themes I picked out that he talked about uh, was this idea of counter-cultural living. Is that something that you've heard Pastor Steve talk about a bit? Yeah? Awesome. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about something called, you know, living on brand. And basically that's what I mean, is living counter-culturally. The way that Paul was calling the church of Philippi to live, the way that Paul is still calling us to live today to a way that is in total opposition to the secular culture that surrounds us, that we are immersed in. And so I've titled this message this morning, Extinguishing Anxiety, because we're going to lean into this idea, this topic of anxiety, and sort of this, this reality that there's this secular branding out in the world that sometimes we're always aware of, but their sole mission is to produce anxiety in our lives for a particular reason, which will make sense in a little bit. But first, we're going to take a look at the text this morning. We're going to read through it. We're going to be in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. And you can follow along in the Bibles that are provided there in page 953, or the text will also be on the screen here for us this morning, which it already is. Is my, is my beard kind of making this a little, a little rough there? You still hear me? Awesome. All right, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. Nine. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord here this morning. Thanks be to God. Now, you may have missed it, um, maybe you didn't, but I am Canadian. I've spent almost my entire life living just outside of the big city of Toronto in Ontario. And I have a, a small confession to share with you that I hope my Canadian family and friends don't hear, but I love Michigan. My family and I moved here just about a year ago, August 1st, 2020. My wife and my daughter, who is 11, and the moment we arrived here, we just felt at home. You know, we can't always put our finger on it, but we just love the mitten. Now, I have friends back in Ontario who sometimes ask me, like, you know, what's it like living in the U.S.? And I mean, that's a pretty open-ended question, right? So here's kind of what I tell them. Not a whole lot. I tell them the water is still fresh, quite literally. The sky is still blue, believe it or not. And I'll say that the grass is, well, I'd be lying to them if I said the grass here wasn't a little bit greener. Because I don't know what y'all do with your grass here in the U.S., but it is some of the most thickest, luscious, greenest grass. It's like you use like some steroid-induced fertilizer mixed with like some locally made, you know, Western Michigan ranch dressing or something. Like it's just this blows my mind. Everywhere I go, I feel like I'm at a golf course. And I mean, this is in comparison to Ontario, where the grass is always crispy, yellow, burnt. It's like you don't even want to walk on it with your bare feet because it's going to hurt. So if you're like a grass enthusiast, enthusiast, kudos to you. Keep doing your thing. I really appreciate it. 
But all joking aside, you know, there, there are some other things, some more serious things that I've noticed to be very similar across the border, things that I've spoken to my family and to my friends about. And one of them is more of a broad cultural thing. You may even go as far as calling it like a societal norm in this day and age. It's something that my family and I experienced a lot of as we jumped through all sorts of hoops in order to relocate our lives across the border during a global pandemic. Um, it's something that more than likely every single person worshiping with us here this morning has also experienced in the past 18 months or so. It's this unprecedented amount of anxiety. In some form or fashion, we all struggle because there's just so much to worry about in this day and age. And the world we're living in is becoming increasingly more complicated, increasingly more troubling. I mean, some might even say, especially as Christians, it's becoming increasingly more hostile to live a bold life of faith. And with all that's currently going on in the world, in many circumstances, it has drawn out the worst in society. You know, all it takes is turning on the evening news for like three minutes, and you know what I'm talking about. The world is simply a messy place to live right now. And maybe you've noticed this other thing too, and you know, I believe one of the reasons why there's so much hostility and tension and, and messiness in the world right now is because of this cultural branding. We've been conditioned to experience anxiety all the time. We are constantly consuming it without even realizing it. It's kind of like this narrative that is used in advertising and marketing. It's, it's in news and reporting and journalism. I mean, you can even find it embedded into almost every social media platform out there. And it's this theme of anxiety that basically transcends the entire media world. You cannot seem to escape it. And it seems like the powers and principalities of this world are trying to produce anxiety in our lives in order so that they can then capitalize and profit on that anxiety using this narrative. So I want you to consider three things. I'm going to give you three kind of examples to, to really drill this down and make sure it's clear. So the first one is the recent political season that we all journeyed through together. Fortunately, I'm not American, so I couldn't vote, but I still experienced the tension of that season. And basically the narrative I heard was, you know, vote for this party, Otherwise, this party is going to drive your country into the gutter. Just simply put, that's kind of what I felt. It doesn't matter what side of the, the red or blue that you stand on. There was this tension that if your values and morals aren't being represented by those in office who are representing you, this country is in grave danger. And it creates this tension and this anxiety about what is the next four years going to look like. Or kind of on a, on a lighter note, maybe you've driven down the highway and, or you've been at the mall and you've seen one of these giant billboard-sized ads with like a shirtless man or a you know, half-clothed woman who have like the most perfect beach bodies and it's just like, whoa. And they're advertising like a beauty product, perfume, maybe, maybe it's clothes or maybe like a watch or something. And it's basically like, you know, purchase this product or else dot, 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 you fill in the blank. You know, when you begin to compare yourself to those people on there. And I mean, even if you buy that product, it's unlikely you're going to feel and look just like them. And it reinforces this idea that we don't measure up to what they think we should. For me personally, it makes me feel like maybe I should consider going to the gym. Maybe I need to start working on my diet, eating better, all those things. And they just create tension and anxiety in our lives. And even on, a, on an even lower, kind of lighter level, iPhone. How many people in here own an iPhone? Just be honest. Yeah. Vast majority. That's pretty common. 
even iPhone uses this, you know, FOMO anxiety marketing tactics. And FOMO, if you don't know, it just means fear of missing out. And they do this to lure other customers away from other brands to say, hey, if you don't have an iPhone, you're missing out on X, Y, and Z. And they are so good at it that they even have managed to use this tactic with their own people's committed customers who are always going to buy an iPhone. They somehow make you think that you always need the newest and the best product. I mean, think about it. It's the only product. Apple is the only product that people will line up outside in a freezing cold Michigan winter for like two or three days waiting for the release of the brand new iPhone. And yet the one in their pocket is probably only six months old. I mean, they have mastered this ability to create this anxiety in our lives. And so this form of cultural branding, it's, it's exactly that. It's designed to make us anxious to the point where we buy the product or we do the thing in response to the anxiety. And almost always, it does not benefit us. It benefits them. And this tactic works so well. I'm just going to take it one step further. It becomes so normalized in our lives that sometimes we even trick ourselves into thinking that, like, if, we don't, if we're not worried about something, then there must be something wrong. And so we find something to worry about. Have you ever found yourself worrying about something just totally ridiculous? And all of a sudden, you kind of, you wake up, you shake your head, and you go, why, why am I worrying about that? really doesn't matter. It's because we're so conditioned to experience anxiety and to kind of have it in our focus. And the reason behind this, and this is kind of like the big thing that I want to connect to scripture here today, and this is the big thing I want you to hear, so you're going to hear it a few times. It's because the things we focus on the longest become the strongest. And those things that we focused on the longest, those things that become the strongest in our lives, those are the things that control our emotions. Those are the things that ultimately dictate our actions, and those are the things that ultimately brand us. And so we're going to jump back into Scripture in just a moment here, I, I promise, but I feel like I need to name a couple more elements of anxiety here this morning just to, just to kind of cover it in a broad perspective. Because, you know, real talk, there are legitimate things in this life that warrants our worry. Situations, circumstances, these things that produce anxiety for reasonable cause. I mean, you can probably name a few things right now that are just legit. Some things in your life that really are creating anxiety for good, good reason. And for others, anxiety isn't just worry compounded. You know, sometimes it's a medical condition. It's related to a chemical imbalance or some type of a mental health issue. And I, I just want to name that here this morning and be sensitive to, the, to that because this message isn't meant to be, like, I don't want anyone to leave here thinking this is some type of a, you know, self-help, quick fix, prosperity gospel message. It's not. But this is God's word. And we should be the first people to know that God's word is life-giving. God's word is transformational. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. And God's word is the only thing that guarantees us hope in every circumstance. And I'm hopeful that whichever category of anxiety you might relate to here this morning, you will leave here with a renewed sense of hope in your hearts and the tangible goodness of God on your mind. You picking up what I'm putting down here? Just connecting? Okay, a couple people. Good. Got a couple people with me. See, we are human. Right? And anxiety is an emotion that is part of the human condition. It's something we all experience for different reasons, and so we can't ignore it, we can't neglect it, we can't avoid it. 
What we have to do is face it head on. But what makes a Christian a Christian, this on-brand living, this countercultural living, is the ability for us to not let the anxiety control us, control our emotions, or dictate our actions. Instead, what we can do, what we should do, is we should turn to God's word, and we should see that through his grace, through his love, through his compassion, through his wisdom, through his instruction, his guidance, God gives us the opportunity to literally take our worries and our anxieties to the cross, to Jesus hanging on that cross, and to ultimately let him carry the burdens of them so that we don't have to. If you hear me today, now would be a great time for an amen. Hallelujah. Now, it might make you feel a little bit better knowing that we aren't the first or the last generation that deals with anxiety like this. Although the reasons may look a little bit different today than they did back in the first century, the church in Philippi that Paul was writing to, they were also dealing with anxiety for many different reasons, especially as a result of the secular culture that they were also immersed in and surrounded by. So let's turn back to Philippians 4 and see what God has to say through Paul about this living on brand as Christians in a time where anxiety is on high alert like it is today. Paul says this in verse 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Usually when a words are repeated like this multiple times, especially in one verse, it's kind of like, wake up, pay attention. This is important. So Paul is doubling down here in verse 4 with the word rejoice because he wants to make sure people hear it. And if you're unsure of what rejoice means, it's simply the, a verb that best describes great joy or delight. And he actually says rejoice 16 times throughout the book of Philippians, which may not seem like a lot, but in relation to other words, it is a lot. Why? Because Paul also knows that what you focus on the longest becomes the strongest. Paul wants the church to focus on the, the goodness of God instead of the anxiety of their circumstances. As you all know, traveling through Philippians, I mean, joy is a big part of our brand as Christians. And when we choose joy, in a roundabout way, we are choosing God because our joy comes from God. And so when you choose joy, you're choosing God. When you choose joy, you're choosing his thoughts. When you choose joy, you are literally putting on the mind of Christ, knowing that what you focus on the longest becomes the strongest. So the more you choose joy, the more you rejoice, the more you become like Christ. It's kind of like this. If I stood up here and talked to you about Coca-Cola, for the next 30 minutes, can I paint this image of how good and how tasty and how flavorful it is? I might even try to tell you how healthy it is, but you know that's a lie because it's got more sugar in it than any other drink, and it's probably going to kill you maybe. But I showed you pictures of people pouring that thick, thick syrup into, you know, a cold, crisp glass with ice, and it jingles around, and you hear that whoosh of, like, the can opening. And, and, I mean, some of you are probably salivating right now thinking about a nice, ice-cold, crisp Coca-Cola. Now, if I did that for 30 minutes and then gave you the choice between a Coke and a Pepsi, what do you think you're going to choose? 
I mean, you're going to choose Coke naturally, unless, of course, you just got some, like, bitter vendetta against Coke, and you take the, the Pepsi instead, just in spite, and then you, you crack it open and drink it, but you're, like, really upset about it, really wanted the Coke all along, but you just want to spite them. I mean, there is a reason why Coca-Cola spends $4 billion on marketing annually. That's in one year. $4 billion, because they get it that what you focus on the longest becomes the strongest, so that when you go to the grocery store and you walk down that eternal aisle of pop flavors, the one that's going to stand out and jump out at you is Coke, and you're just going to naturally assume that's the best choice for you. And believe it or not, it works. Four billion dollars for liquid sugar. Unbelievable. So when Paul says the words rejoice over and over again, his hopeful attention is similar to Coca-Cola, that it will reorient mindsets to focus on the goodness of God instead of the current trials and tribulations of anxiety. And when we do this, when we rejoice in the Lord always, the gentleness of God comes upon you. And that's just kind of organically becomes evident to everyone around you. And people will begin to experience the love and the kindness and the joy and the grace of Jesus through you without you even really doing anything intentionally. And Paul continues in verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul just names it here. Do not be anxious about anything. He doesn't beat it in the bush or try to soft sell it or sugarcoat it. And I mean, like, we know these kinds of people. The kinds of people that it just seems like they're Mr. or Mrs. Happy-Go-Lucky. Like they have Hakuna Matata playing around in their head all day long. Nothing seems to shake them. Nothing seems to bother them. And I mean, if I'm honest, maybe you can relate, but sometimes I do not like those people because I so desperately want to be just like them. Like, what is the secret sauce? How do you do that? How do you live life without a worry in the world? But Paul, he's not foolish enough to think that a direct command like that, to simply not, do not be anxious, you know, would be enough for God's people to actually obey and follow through on. I mean, if you've ever read much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you know that God's people don't have a great track record of obeying commands. And if we consider the reasons why the Philippians were experiencing anxiety, they had just cause to be anxious. See, the church of, at Philippi was a much smaller community of believers who were in many ways so, so different from the Roman culture that surrounded them. And so the existence of a, of a group of people who claimed to have the mind of Christ, I mean, we know that today. It's not like a super weird statement to make, but back then, like, that was weird. And so what happened was, people began to be suspicious of these people that claimed to have the mind of Christ. And, you know, suspicion easily gave way to, like, gossip. And, and, I mean, you know what happens with gossip? It gets twisted and contorted. Next thing you know, stories are being told and wild accusations are being thrown at these people. And there was this pressure for the believers to conform to the secular culture. And this sort of pressure can be difficult to live with. And it became a great source of fear for the church and you got to understand, it didn't, it, you know, Paul here is writing to them from jail. His, their very own pastor. He's now saying, hey, y'all should live like me. And what 
that will do is probably end you up in jail. I mean, live like me, and, and, you know, I'm talking persecution here. I'm sure that Pastor Steve has talked about it at some point, but there was this threat of persecution for them living out their lives like Jesus' followers. And Paul's like, yeah, you should probably live like this. And could you imagine that anxiety? To live in a way where your faith threatens being put in jail, threatened maybe your own life. That would create some anxiety. But what Paul does here is he provides a very clear action step, kind of like a key to countering anxiety. It's, it's just wonderful. Paul tells the church that in every situation, especially those that are producing anxiety, they simply go to prayer. Through prayer with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, Paul says. And the results, the, the fruit of this action step, is God's peace. I mean, who here couldn't use a, a little less anxiety and a lot more of peace in their life today? And so prayer is the first key to experiencing that peace. And, and this peace, it says, it transcends all understanding. So what that means is it's very complicated to understand. I honestly can't tell you how it works other than to tell you that it does. And if you've ever gone to prayer with anxiety and then you've said amen and experienced God's peace, you too know that it's just, it's hard to put your finger on. It's hard to really explain what happens in that moment. But it truly does work. And what I can tell you is that anxiety and prayer are more opposed to each other than fire and water. That's how extreme these two are. And I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know if these two, fire and water, go up against each other in battle, which one is going to win every single time. So prayer is the water that extinguishes the fires of anxiety. Let me say that again. Prayer is the water that extinguishes the fires of anxiety. And the trophy God's peace. It's, it's the fruit. It's easy to say. It's harder to do. I mean, it shouldn't be, but it's just, it's hard. Something often happens when we do take our anxiety to God. So I, I want to show you something here. These, uh, these aren't my little comfort plush toys. This is what happens when you ask your 11-year-old daughter to get some stuff in a bucket for me to use as an object lesson. I just took a chance. It's not too bad. So I want you to think of these as our anxieties, things that you're anxious about today. Now, maybe you're a, you're a kid, you're a student, you're thinking about going back to school, you're starting to think about all these tests and exams and all these things that you're going to have to do, and it's just like, you just want summer to go on forever. Maybe you've experienced some financial difficulties through COVID. Maybe you're now looking for a new job. Maybe you're having to sell your house and move because things just aren't working out here anymore, and there's this, this stress, this tension about what the future is going to look like. Maybe you've got some health issues and you can't find a diagnosis. You have no idea what's wrong. No doctors can give you an answer and you're just stressed out about, well, you know, what's wrong with me? How am I going to get through life? Maybe you've got anxiety about kids at home who are just, you know, it's the end of the summer, so I know parents here are just stressed. They're just like, ah, you know, my kids are giving me such a good run for my money. They're testing my patients like never before and you just can't wait for them to go back to school. And on the other side of the fence, maybe you've got elderly parents who are now beginning to transition out of a less independent life and you're trying to get them in a home or something and they're pushing back and you've just got all this anxiety going on and you walk around with it and, and, and we do this really good thing, which I think that as Christians we are really good at doing. We take them to God in prayer. So we do whatever we do in our prayer closet in public, however we do it, and we begin to pray, God, you know, I really need help in this area. God, I just, I give all these anxieties to you, God. I just, I need your help so bad. Just help me, Jesus. I need your help. Take these anxieties and, and just 
They're your burden to carry, not mine. And for a split second, we experience that peace. We give a good hearty amen, and it's like, you can breathe. All is well with my soul. And as the the noise and the chatter of the world begins to pick up behind you, you kind of look around, you pick them up, and you carry on with your life. I mean, I'm great at doing this. I'm public enemy number one. I have such a hard time of, of leaving my anxieties with Jesus on that cross. Now, I don't know why we do this. Maybe you don't. Tell me how you do it. You know, is it possible that we have control issues? You know, I can deal with this stuff. I'll get through it. I'll figure it out. I'll I'll get the fix. Or maybe we just don't have enough trust. Trust in the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But either way, Paul offers us another clear action step. This is kind of like the icing on the cake. A second key to extinguishing anxiety and experiencing God's peace. In verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, like finally, like once you've taken your anxieties to prayer. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. You see, Paul knew, he understood what it felt like for the anxiety, the fire of anxiety that burns like a raging inferno inside of us. Not only did he experience it, but he knew the church of Philippi was also experiencing it. And he knew how much anxiety influences a person's life. He knew back then that what you focus on the longest becomes the strongest. And therefore, what a person allows to occupy their mind is what will sooner or later determine his or her speech or action. And so the first key is to not only take our anxieties to God in prayer, which is what we're we're really good at doing, but to, to leave them there with him. And then the second key is to begin filling the void of that anxiety in our minds with things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Whatever is true and noble, whatever is pure and right, whatever is lovely and admirable, to put on the mind of Christ. Think of these things, Paul says, because what you focus on the longest becomes the strongest. And if you're thinking of these kinds of things all the time, you don't leave much room in your mind for the anxiety especially the the secular-produced cultural branding anxiety that tries to condition us, like the billboards and the iPhone ads. And, you know, what happens is you you slowly starve out that anxiety, that anxiety that you're so used to focusing on, and the result becomes God's peace, which ultimately protects and guards our hearts and our minds from anxiety. It's like a two-for-one deal. You experience his peace, And he guards and protects you. Now, I recognize that we're basically strangers here this morning. Met a few of you. I've met like 18 Steves. I don't know what's with this church and Steves. You're all amazing. I'm going to be a little honest with you and share a little bit of a secret about myself. Um, Because sometimes people say, oh, Dylan, you're you're so confident when you preach. And 
But to be honest, I have so much anxiety about public speaking. You know, before I was a Christian, that was my greatest fear. After I became a Christian, it was still my greatest fear. But then when God begins to call you, whether it's your job, your, your calling, uh, whatever it is, career, and you have to public speak all the time, it becomes a bit of, of a thorn in your side if, if you have major anxiety about it. And over the years, I've, I've just begun to notice how this anxiety about preaching and, and speaking in front of people negatively affects me. How I treat my family differently, and I'm just not friendly, I'm not social. And I've had to learn how to, how to counter that and how to take my anxieties to the cross and then leave them there one at a time. And then begin to, to pray this simple prayer that I want to share with you this morning. You know, I don't pray for things that are lovely and admirable and go through, you know, that verse. But what I do simply pray is, Lord God, guard my heart, guard my mind. Hear all my anxieties, God. Now, guard my heart, guard my mind. Can you say that with me? Lord God, guard my heart, guard my mind. Lord God, guard my heart, guard my mind. And see what happens. You begin to experience God's peace. You begin to focus on the, the goodness of God. And you see, Paul gets it, too, because he also lived it. And he kind of, he lands the, the plane here in verse 9 where he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you're anything like me, you read that verse and kind of go like, man, Paul's being a little prideful. Right? Kind of like stroking his ego here a little bit. Like, hey, look at me. I'm Paul. I'm so holy. Yada, yada, yada. Right? Am I, am I wrong? Or is that kind of how that comes across? But you see, the Church of Philippi, they didn't have the written word yet. They weren't blessed like us to have the full depth of the Bible. They were receiving letters. There were surely some other letters in circulation. But one way that they learned and definitely how to live on brand, how to live counterculturally in the world they were living in was by not only listening to the pastor preach and teach, but also watching the way that he modeled that life. And despite Paul being in jail at the time of writing this letter, he was still living on brand. He was still rejoicing always and praying in every situation. He was still focusing on whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. And, and that right there is modeling the brand of Christianity that God is calling us to, a brand that is truly worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm not sure if Pastor Steve, uh, what he preached when he went through the first chapter of Philippians, but there's this like standout verse, verse 27, that says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as we come nearing the end of Paul's letter to the church here, these, these six verses that we're going through, they're like his rapid fire kind of closing arguments and exhortations of what it looks like to live worthy, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mean, this is essentially the practical. Paul's like, don't just do as I say, but do as I do. Do as Christ would do. And even Jesus experienced anxiety. And when he was breathing his last breath, living his final moments as a free man here on earth before he was betrayed and arrested, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his anxiety was on a whole nother level, to the point where he was sweating 
blood, which is a scientifically proven thing that happens with excruciating stress and anxiety. I'm sure you can guess what his response to that anxiety was, right? Prayer. Three times in the scriptures, he pours the water of prayers over that fire of anxiety in order to extinguish those those stresses, those anxieties, that experience, three times. And I can just picture Jesus kneeling there in the dark, in the dirt, you know, repeating this same prayer, Father God, guard my heart, guard my mind, guard my heart, guard my mind. And so it is, to the redemptive power of Christ in us today, combined with the indwelling fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we too can follow in Jesus' footsteps, extinguishing the the trial and tribulation fires of anxiety with the calm, cooling, peaceful waters of prayer. Because we too now know that what we focus on the longest becomes the strongest. And we're always going to have anxiety in our lives. That's not going to change. But instead of allowing the secular pressures of conformity and the anxiety-inducing branding of the world to take up residence in our minds and control our lives, Jesus has paid the price of salvation on the cross for us and has paved a way for us to practically live lives full of grace in a way that truly is worthy of the gospel. Paul calls the church then, and God is still calling the church through Paul today to rejoice in the Lord always, to let everyone see and experience his gentleness through us, to pray about everything so that we can be anxious about nothing, to set our minds on things that are excellent and praiseworthy, whatever is true and noble, whatever is right and pure, whatever is lovely and admirable. Church, may we focus on the goodness of God and experience his peace together as we continue living on brand, joy-filled lives as Christians, taking our anxieties to the cross and praying that simple prayer. Lord God, Guard my hearts and guard my mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear and concise you often speak to us, the the practical steps that you give us to live lives that you're calling us to live to live in the way that Paul is saying that we should live, lives that are in direct opposition to the way the world wants us to live, lives where we don't let our anxieties control us, but where we can filter them, push back against them, and then experience your peace. God, we thank you for the power in your word here today, and we thank you for the way that your spirit is moving in our hearts, desiring to transform our lives from the inside out. Lord God, we thank you that we can stand upon you as our rock, as our cornerstone, and that we can live the way that you're calling us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.